I'm delighted that you're here. We have visitors with us. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. <clears throat> We've been in a series of studies on Sunday evenings in which we began each time looking at a promise Jesus made in Matthew 16 and in verse 18. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And since Jesus is the one that said that, then this is the Lord's church. And since he is divine, that makes this a divine institution. Meaning this is a very important thing for us to talk about, to talk about the Lord's church. We repeatedly made the point that this promise was made while the Old Testament was in force, but fulfilled when the New Testament became effective in Acts 2 and in verse 47. Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that it was not fit, built upon Old Testament principles, Old Testament law, but it is built upon the New Testament, and we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and thus we've referred to this as the New Testament church. And so we've been in a series that we call the New Testament church, and we've talked about a number of things thus far. We've talked about its standard and its discipline. We've talked about its origin and its establishment. We've talked about the nature of the church. What is the church? Its organization. We've talked about its work. And then in our last study, we've talked about the worship that it offers. We want to continue that study tonight, and let's talk about the New Testament church, its name. Let's talk about the name of the New Testament church. So we talk about the name. A name is key to identity of any person or place or thing. A name is defined by the dictionary as a word or combination of words by which a person, place, or thing, a body or class, or any object of thought is designated, called, or known. The sort of definition is simply any, that by which a thing is called. So anything that God calls his body of people, the church, is a name. That's something that God called that. So the question tonight is, what is the name of the New Testament church, and is that important at all? And so we seek to answer some questions tonight. Is the name important? Some will tell us the name is not important. More about that in a moment. Is one name used to the exclusion of all other names? Is there only one name in the New Testament, and that's the name we have to use, and no other name can be used except that one? Is that the case? Or are there several names in the church concerning the church in the New Testament, but only one of those we're allowed to use. But there are many others that are given. Is that the case? And what's wrong with some of the names that are used in churches today, in some of the denominational groups? What's wrong with some of those names, and why are those names used? We'll talk about that as our lesson unfolds. Let's talk about the name of the New Testament church. Let's begin with this. Let's talk about the importance of a name. Is a name important? Quite often we hear someone say, Names do not matter. That there is nothing in a name. You talk to someone in denominationalism and you talk about the name of the church of which they're a part. Where is that in the pages of the New Testament? Their response may be, there's nothing in a name. Names are not important. Doesn't matter what we call it. Names are unimportant. And so the name of the church is just not important at all. So let's raise some questions about that. First of all, what about your name? Is your name important? When you tell someone your name, do you give one name today and then you give an entirely different name tomorrow that you just make up because names are just unimportant? You really don't care what people call you? Does it matter if someone calls you by someone else's name? 
Suppose someone that's been your enemy or someone that's been a thorn in your flesh, if I come up and call you by that name, is that okay? Could we call you Jezebel or maybe Judas? This is our Judas in the church here. I want to introduce you to our Judas. And this is our Jezebel. Would that be okay? You wouldn't like that. Would it matter if your wife wore some other man's name? What if you got married and your wife takes the name of another man? Because names don't really matter. Names are not important. It doesn't matter about that at all. Would that work? You're beginning to see that there is something to a name. Can we call the church just by any name? Names are not important, remember. Names are insignificant. So can we call the church the church of Raider? Would that be all right? So those that would argue that, what if I offered them to use my name? Let's call this the church of Raider. Would that, would that be something satisfactory? Well, they, they, they wouldn't go for that. So why don't we just call it the church of Satan? Instead of calling it the church of Christ or the church of God or the church of our Lord or the Lord's church, let's call it the church of Satan. Remember, names don't really matter. So we'll call this the church of Satan. I know that doesn't work either. Can we call one religious group by the name of another religious group? Would that be fair? Would that identify? Remember, names identify. So could we, for example, identify and introduce this Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and say he's a Catholic? He'd be quick to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Catholic, I'm a Jew. Well, then could we take that Catholic and say he's actually, let's call him, we call him a Buddhist. Or would he say, oh, no, I'm not a Buddhist. Don't call me a Buddhist, I'm a Catholic. Or what about a Presbyterian? Let's call them a Muslim. Or why not take a Nazarene and call them a Methodist? Now, I understand you go to the Methodist. Oh, no, I don't go to the Methodist. I go to the Nazarene. Names don't matter, I thought. Or could we take a church of God and refer to it as a free will Baptist? Or could we take a Jehovah's Witness and call them a Mormon? Or could we take the free will and call them a primitive Baptist, an irregular? Could we do that? They would be quick to say, oh, no, 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 no. No, we're not, we're not old regulars. We're, not, we're free will. See, we don't believe the same thing. We're different. You see, begin to see names do make a difference, don't they? Names indeed are important. That's what we're driving at. Now, the bride should wear the husband's name. Now, these two passages don't mention the name, but they do mention the fact that we are married or joined to Christ. Romans chapter 7, for example, that we're dead to the law, the Jews were dead to the law, that they should be married to another, even to Christ. And so if we as the body of Christ are married to the Lord, the Lord is our bride or our husband and we are the bride. If that be the case, then we ought to wear the husband's name, not the name of someone other. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17, you're familiar with the fact that we should do all things including the name that we use should be done by the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord, by the authority of the Lord. So the question is, where is the passage that authorizes this name? Whatever name that it is that we choose. Peter would argue in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, chapter 4 and verse 11, if anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So we ought to speak as the sayings of God. And so the question is, well, <clears throat> what does God say about a name? Does he say anything about a name or his designation by which the church is called? Now, I understand there is some importance in a name. Let's talk about some denominational names. Let's talk about the meaning of those names, the reason for some of those names and the, the meaning behind it. Many of the names, uh, many of the churches got their names or developed their names as these churches developed coming out of the Reformation movement. Now, if you're not familiar with the Reformation movement, just the thumbnail kind of description of the Reformation movement, as the Catholic church became so corrupt 
and men in the Catholic Church begin to recognize the corruption of the Catholic Church, they tried to reform that. And so in the 15 and early 1600s, there were many that were leading in that Reformation movement, such men as Martin Luther and others. But that's just a quick description of what the Reformation movement might be about. There are some churches that develop their name because of the scope of the church. For example, the term Catholic means universal. And so they use that term to describe the scope of their church. It's a universal church. They have a pope that's over the whole group all over the world. And so it's a universal church. There's some churches that use the name of a man and they name it after a man. The Lutheran church is named after Martin Luther. And so they're naming it after a man. There are some churches that take their name after the form of government, like the Presbyterian or the Episcopal church. The Episcopus and Presbyter are biblical terms talking about those in leadership, those who are elders. So it's describing the form of leadership. This is the Presbyterian church or the Episcopal church. There are others that take their name after their practice, like the Baptist, that means they immersed, versus those that would sprinkle or pour. And so they take the name after their practice. There are those who would take their name after their belief or their doctrine, like the Pentecostal or Oneness group. You might find the Church of God, and in parentheses, they'll put on their sign, the Oneness. These are Oneness Pentecostal. It tells me something of their belief, something of their practice, and something of their doctrine. And so that's the origin of the name or the reason why some of those churches have their names. The names that are suggested suggest the idea of division and sectarianism. That is, it implies that God's people are divided into various sects or various groups. So various names give us the idea that God's people, the church as a whole, are divided into denominations. And so here's how that works. The idea of denominationalism is that God's people represented by this larger circle, or oval, that represents God's people, those who are saved, that we talked about this morning. Those who have been forgiven of their sins. That's people all over the world. Now, some of those are grouped together, and they would be identified as Adventists because they worship God on the side. But they're God's people, denominationalism says. They're just a small segment of God's people. But some of God's people identify as being Nazarenes, and they like that particular doctrine, they're still God's people, not any different than the Adventist, denominationalism would say. There are others that identify themselves as Catholic, and some of them as Presbyterians, and some as Church of God, and some as Church of Christ, some as Baptist, and some as Methodist. That is not the biblical picture, but that is the concept that men have of denominationalism, that God's people are divided into various segments or various forms, various forms or flavors, if you will. Now, let's go a step further. It is argued from John chapter 15, those who believe in the concept of denominationalism, they argue from John chapter 15 where Jesus said, I am the vine, verse 5, and you are the branches. It is argued that what Jesus is talking about is denominationalism. When we ask our friends, where does the Bible speak of denominationalism? Various churches of all sorts, believing and practicing different things. They will cite John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. All these churches are the different branches that we just saw. So all these churches right here that you see uh, on the chart we noticed a moment ago, those are different branches, is the idea. But let's see what's being talked about in John chapter 15. Now, we don't take, have the time to read all of the context, 
But what I want us to see in John chapter 15 is highlighted here that Jesus is talking not about churches, not about groups, but about individuals. The same argument that we have seen or abuse of the text when we deal with institutionalism and how they've taken James 1, Galatians 6 that applies to the church and, and applies to the individual and they're making application to the church. The same thing is going on here in John chapter 15. Let's see what's being said. Let's start at verse 4. He said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abide in the vine, neither can you. Well, who's the you? Unless you abide in me, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, who's he talking about? Let's go further. He said, He who abides in me and I in him which bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone, that's an individual, does not abide in me, he is cast out of the branch and uh, as a branch and is withered and they are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask uh, what you desire and it shall be done for you. What's he dealing with in the context that I as an individual is being addressed and so are you as an individual being addressed in that context. I am the vine and you individuals are the branches. Not a reference to denominationalism at all. Now, God has a plan for unity. Let's go to John chapter 17, 20, and 21. God has a plan for unity. And let's see how this harmonizes in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, with that concept of denominationalism that we pictured just a few moments ago. In John 17, Jesus, as he's praying for the disciples, he said, I do not pray for these alone, that is, those immediate disciples there, but also for those who believe on me through their word. That's me and that's you. And anyone else who believes on the Lord, we believe on the Lord through the word of the apostles. Now what about those that he prays about? Let's look at verse 21. That they may all be one as you, Father, and me and I and you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. He said, for those that believe on me through the word, that they may be one, that they may be united as you and I are united. That is, as, as the Father and the Son are united. Now that chart we just noted a moment ago, here you have those who believe in baptism and those who don't believe in baptism. Those who believe in oneness Pentecostalism and those who believe in the Trinity. You have those who believe the Bible is inspired and those who believe the Bible is not inspired. That doesn't sound much like being one as Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son are united on those same principles. Let's go further. Let's look at 1, John, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 10. Being called by different names is divisive. We see in the church at Corinth, some were saying, you know, they were not trying to start new churches. This is not the picture here. But within a local church, there was fractions and divisions within a local church. And some were saying, I am of Paul. And others say, oh no, I am of Apollos. And others were saying, I'm of Cephas. In other words, I follow and take after this one. No, I'm, I follow and take after this one. So they were calling themselves after different men, and that was divisive. Look at verse 10, for example. He said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things. In other words, be united, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What is the mind and the judgment? Perhaps the mind has reference to the mind of Christ, the Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. The same judgment, the same conclusion, that same word is used in Acts 20 and in verse 3 with reference to a, they decided, a conclusion they drew. So that you be joined together in the same standard and the same conclusion from that standard. In other words, that there be unity as God prayed for, Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. Now I know the name is important. 
And I know something about denominational names and what that means and what that implies. Let's talk about scriptural names that we can find with reference to the church. And as we look at this, may I suggest to you that there is not one name that is used in the New Testament to the exclusion of another name found in the New Testament. Now, when we look at some of these, you may say, well, that's not actually a name that was given. But if it is a designation, if it's something that God used to refer to the group of his people, it is a name. It's a designation. For example, we read about the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, that group of people that met at Corinth, was it a church of God? It's what he called it. That's the term he used. It's called a church of God. Uh, don't take that to be the denominational group. They didn't believe the same thing that the church of God of today believes, the oneness Pentecostal, for example. But they were a church of God that was at Corinth. Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus to take heed to the church of God of which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. Same phrase. So would it be scriptural to refer to God's people as this is the church of God, church that belongs to God, the church that, that came from the mind of God? Well, certainly so. It was used there in those two passages. Here's another. There were, we read a reference of the church of the firstborn. Just a designation. That's the only time I know that phrase is used. Another phrase that's used is the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. Speaking of a plurality of local churches, the churches of Christ salute you. Now, if a plurality of these local churches were churches of Christ, one of them would be a church of Christ. And so the church at Corinth would be a church of Christ. So would the church at Ephesus be a, so would the church at uh, Smyrna, so would the church at Laodicea, wherever the church may be. The church at Elbathel would be a church of Christ. Based on Romans 16 and verse 16. Colossians 1 and verse 24 refers to the church as the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. So we've been talking about the New Testament church, a church we read about in the New Testament. You say, well, what's it called? Well, sometimes it's just called the body of Christ. Here's another expression. It's called the house of God, the house referring to the family of God. Paul told Timothy that you may know how to, you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. What is the church? It's the house of God. So would it be right to refer to this, the, the house of God at El Bethel? Well, it is the house of God. It is the family of God. And with the location, El Bethel is where we meet, the location. Well, there's another reference. Sometimes it's just referred to the, as the church. Now, this is interesting. Let's take a look over in the book of Revelation because there's several references close together. Revelation 2 and in verse, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. That could be the church of God, which is at Ephesus, like the church of God at Corinth, but that's not the phrase that was used. The church of Ephesus. Just referred to as the church. Same thing in verse 8. Look at verse 8 to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Look at chapter 3. Drop down to chapter 3 and in verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. It's referred to as the church. Those are scriptural terms. Those are, not one of those could, should be used to the exclusion of all others so that I could rebuke someone because they refer to it as the house of God. Someone else refers to it as the church. Someone else as the body of Christ. Someone else is the church of God. Someone else is the church of Christ. Those are names that we find scriptural in the New Testament. But let's talk about some scriptural names for the individual. Now let's go back to this principle we've talked about previously in our study. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16. There is a difference in the individual and the church. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve those that are widows indeed. 
So here is some responsibility the individual has that's not to be laid upon the church, meaning there's a difference in the church and in the individual. What's true of one is not necessarily true of the other. In fact, the body is not one member but many. If the body and the church are one and the same, what the text is saying is the church is not made up of one member, but it's made up of a plurality of members. What an individual is called is not the name of the church. What the church is called is not the name of the individual. An individual could not correctly say, I am a church of Christ. I might be a member of the church. I could not say, I am a body of Christ. I am the church of God. I am a church of God. Because the body is not one member, but many. 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 14. Now what were some of the individuals called? Well, individuals were called Christians. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Remember, Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And in 1 Peter 4, 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God on this behalf. The term Christian focuses on the relationship to Christ. So one of the terms that was used to describe the individual servant of God is he's a Christian. What does that suggest when you tell someone, I am a Christian? It means I'm a follower of Christ. Here's another term that was used. Children of God. Notice in Galatians 3 verse 26. If you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is focusing on our relationship to God. Now while we're followers of Christ, therefore we're Christians. This phrase gives us the focus that in our relationship to God, God is our father and we are his children. We are children of God. He takes care of us. He provides for us. He directs us and he corrects us. There's another statement or phrase that's used. Disciples. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. A disciple focuses on a, the following of their teaching. If I am a disciple of, and fill in the blank, that means whoever it is I'm a disciple of, I'm following their teaching. I'm following their instruction. I'm listening to their direction. So a disciple of Christ means I'm a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm listening to Christ. I'm taking teaching from Christ. They're also called saints. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. He said to the church of God, which is at Corinth, we've already noticed that phrase, to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So those that made up the church of God, the individuals there were called saints. The idea of the saints focuses on their separation from the world, their holiness and their purity. They're set apart. They're not living like the rest of the world. They're set apart. So it's dealing with the idea of separation. Quite often the phrase brethren is used. Notice in writing to the church at Colossae. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 2. He said to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Same principle in 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 10. This focuses not on our relationship to God but our relationship one to another. That we together have the same relationship to God. And indirectly, it refers to our relationship to God. But it focuses on our relationship one to another as brothers are within the same family. And so we're brethren. Those were some phrases that were used. Now let's conclude by talking about being ashamed of the name. I know the name is important. I know denominational names uh, have some problems with those names, but I also notice there's some scriptural names that the church is referred to and scriptural names for the individual. Let's talk about being ashamed of the name. 
What do we mean by that? Well, we should never be ashamed of our name, whatever our name may be. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It means I'm not ashamed of anything found in the gospel, anything revealed in the gospel. So if the gospel reveals Jesus is the Son of God, I shouldn't be ashamed of that. If the gospel reveals that one must believe, I shouldn't be ashamed of that, or baptism is essential. I shouldn't be ashamed of that. If the gospel reveals the name of an individual, such as a believer or saint or Christian or disciple, I shouldn't be ashamed of that. If it reveals the name of a church, I shouldn't be ashamed of that because it's part of the gospel. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 8. We shouldn't be ashamed of fellow Christians. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, that's the gospel, the revelation, nor of me his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor be ashamed of me. We shouldn't be ashamed of fellow Christians. I'm not saying I shouldn't be ashamed of something someone did that was contrary to God. That's not the point. But I shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that this is my brother or this is my sister in the Lord and the relationship that we have. We should not be ashamed of the name Christian. If any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the fact that you're suffering because you are a child of God and that indeed you are a Christian. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 11. The Lord is not ashamed to call us brethren. Speaking of his becoming flesh and the purpose for his becoming flesh, that he might taste death for us, both he and he who sanctifies uh, and those that are being sanctified are all of one. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, if you are sanctified, we talked this morning about what does it mean to be saved. If you are saved, that means you're sanctified, you're set apart by God. If Jesus has sanctified you, he is not ashamed to call you one of the brethren. Call you his own brother. He's not ashamed of us. Neither should we be ashamed of him. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, if you will, with me. Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called our God. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, if God looks at those who are his people and said, I am their God and I'm not ashamed to be called their God. God's not ashamed of us. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. We all not to be ashamed of the gospel. So all of that is it is connected to the name of the church or the name of the individual. We should not be ashamed of that. Now what would you think of someone who is ashamed of your name? What if someone was ashamed of your name? For example, what if your children were ashamed to wear your name? What if your children, as they're born, you've given them your, their, they wear your last name? But as they introduce themselves, they try to hide the fact that I don't want you to know that my last name is whatever that last name is. They're ashamed of that. What would you think? What would you think if your children were ashamed? What if your wife was ashamed to wear your name? She said, I'll be married to you and I want to be married to you, but I don't want to wear your name. I don't want to tell people I have your name. I don't want that. I want to wear a different name. I'm ashamed of that name. I don't want people to know I'm connected with that name. What would you think of that? What if someone introduced you and didn't use your real name? And when you tried to hint it, this is my real name, they kind of pushed that off. I don't want them to know that's your name. What would you think of that? 
Or maybe they wanted to change your name just to alter it enough that they don't want to be to people to know who you really are. That they're connected and they're friends with you. What do you think of that? Some are ashamed of the name that you read about in the New Testament. Some churches have taken their name off the sign. And it may be just a group of Christians meet here. I'm not saying that that's sinful for them to have a sign that says group of Christians, but I'm more concerned about the concept of why did they want to take the name of the church off of that? Why do they want to take the name Church of Christ or Church of God or the Church of the Firstborn, whatever name they may have used? Why do they want to take that off of the sign? Is that a little bit like the children say, I don't want you to know my, my, that I'm connected with my daddy and mama. I don't want you to know that. I am, but I don't want you to know that. There are some churches that don't use the name in the advertisement. We won't invite people to come, but we don't want them to know this is a church of Christ. We don't want them to know that. We just want them to think it's a church, some group. We don't want them to know what it is. We don't know what, what we're doing. We want, don't want them to know the belief that we stand for and the doctrines we teach. We just want them to come. Some Christians hesitate to tell people where they go to church. Now, I go to church all the time, but where you go? Well, I go to a place out here. I, uh, and um, side, other side of shovel here. I don't, but they don't want to tell them where they go to church, that I go to the El Bethel Church of Christ. Because perhaps of the prejudice with reference to that. So what have I learned tonight? Well, as we looked at the church with reference to its work, its worship, organization, various other principles concerning the church of the New Testament, its name equally is important. We've seen the importance of a name. We've seen denominational names, where they came from, what's wrong with those denominational names. Some biblical names that we find concerning the church, biblical names with reference to the individual, and the fact that we ought never be ashamed of something we find revealed in the pages of the New Testament. If it is the church, the body of Christ, we're to tell people it's the body of Christ. If it's a household of God, this is the family of God. If it's a church of God, we're to tell them it's a church of God. If it's a church of Christ, we're to tell them it's a church of Christ. If I'm a Christian, I should tell them I'm a Christian. I'm a follower, disciple, or not to be ashamed of the name. We'll continue our study next Lord's Day evening, Lord willing. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?